You're an entrepreneur ready to start pitching your new business. People do presentations all the time. Frequently, they don't do them very well. But first, you need to write your business plan. Best practices, being very well prepared, understanding your audience extremely well, and being flexible. This is the Language of Business, a weekly podcast designed to inform and inspire entrepreneurs and anyone thinking about a startup. Learn about strategies that work and strategies that don't work. I'm executive producer Don Kelly. Our host is Greg Stoller, Harvard MBA and senior lecturer at Boston University Questrom School of Business. Coming up, we'll look at putting together a competitive analysis. But first, a way to test your pitch before you pitch. Here's Greg Stoller. Thanks, Don. The goal is to identify an unmet business opportunity. Use a funnel as an analogy. Begin at the mouth as the entire industry you'll be operating in. Then gradually funnel down to the individual sectors making up that industry. It's in one of these sectors where you'll introduce your new business idea. How detailed should you be? Some experienced entrepreneurs know how to whet the reader's appetite and use a strategy of less is more through a series of bullet points. Others believe in making their case almost like a lawyer does in a courtroom, methodically step by step, impressing them with their industry knowledge. Let's find out the merits of both approaches. Our first guest is John Francis, a serial entrepreneur primarily focusing on high-tech companies. He strongly believes in the merits of thorough industry analysis. John, welcome to the Language of Business. Good to be here, Greg. So what startup are you currently involved with? Well, I'm doing two things right now. One of them is a pure startup called Test My Pitch, and the other is at quite the opposite end of the spectrum. Um, we're doing a lot of work with Red Hat. And what is the difference between the two? Well, it's very interesting. Obviously, one is a multi, you know, is a, a billion and a half dollar company this year. One is an, a pure startup. So in the pure startup's case, one of the challenges, right, is you really don't have an established market yet. You're still trying to ascertain who you're selling the product to. You have an idea, but you don't have a fixed market yet, and you don't have marketplace feedback. Test My Pitch is really a cloud-based validation of a presentation. By a presentation, do you mean a PPT? Do you mean something? Uh, Literally like we're doing. It would be uh, you could literally present your presentation. You could just stand up in front of your camera at your home or at your office and have your presentation validated or verified along a series of criteria. And the second one? Well, the second, as I say, is a, a less of a startup and really more of a trying to appeal to some startups on behalf of a billion-plus-dollar company. But for the benefit of our viewers, what is Red Hat and sort of what technologies do they cover? Red Hat is the industry leader in commercializing open-source software. So going back to the first one, yep. test my pitch, how do you assess the industry attractiveness of this type of technology? Uh, good question, because it's a, in a case like this where there isn't a direct competitor, what there really are is a series of other players that have things that overlap a little bit, that do some of what they're trying to do. So what we've tried to do is several things. One, we are the audience, if you will. Everybody involved in the company the management is team or the management team and the advisors are all people who have been entrepreneurs and or have been involved in would be prospective users of the service. Two, we went to some gatherings of people that would be the target audience or representative of the target audience, and we circulated a number of surveys to those people. Secondly, we also have built out an alpha stage version of the product to try and validate what the product does and the user experience associated with it. But how much of this is going for marketing and how much of this is going to test the industry's attractiveness? Well, I think a lot of it is to figure out, you know, we've gained a sense from the, the early surveys that we've done that there is an opportunity, that it does solve a problem that people perceive as a problem. Sure. The next piece was to say, is somebody doing this already? Are they doing it in a, in a very direct and elegant way? 
The answer to that question appears to be no. So then the next step is, well, how do we then address that problem? So the corollary to that is, tell us about the competitive situation. Nice lead into that, right? So the competitive situation is when you're dealing with, in some ways, it's much easier to go into a situation where you have an established competitor. If you're coming in with a new soft drink and you're competing with Coke or Pepsi, you know how they position themselves and you know what their value proposition is. When you're coming in in a case like this, where the market is very fragmented and there are no direct competitors, you have to look at a sector approach. So that's what we've tried to do. Look at the sector, look at the users and what they perceive as valuable, and then look at other people that use similar technologies for different purposes, thinking that they might be able to pivot and be competitors over time. So you use the term value proposition. In 30 seconds or so, what do you think is the value proposition of Test My Pitch? The great thing about it is people are doing presentations in school. They're doing presentations in internal to their own businesses and external as well. They have different criteria for what they may be seeking to do. They may be trying to be very professorial or they may try to be very authoritative. Whatever it may happen to be, there are different objectives that they have. Being able to set up a set of criteria and have people evaluate how good of a job you do along those criteria is quite useful to people. I'm Greg Stoller and my guest is John Francis, a serial entrepreneur. You mentioned you're a strong believer in thoroughly written industry competitive analyses. Why is this the case? You know, I'm less worried about writing a report per se, and what I'm more worried about is actually going through the rigor of thinking, has someone already done this? Have they done it well? Have they done a a poor job and we can do a better job? I don't want to get involved in a startup where what we're going to do is reinvent something that someone's already done an excellent job of inventing. So I think it's very important to have the discipline to go through, to do the research, figure out how other people are attacking these problems. But let me interrupt you and, and posit this. Are you trying to reinvent the wheel, which is sort of traditional tech that you're doing something nobody's done before, or are you simply trying to capitalize on inefficiency in the market? Well, I think in this case, you could call it an inefficiency in that there isn't really a product that does what we're trying to do, so call that an inefficiency, if you will, or a gap, and we're trying to address that, and we're trying to address it as elegantly as we can, so that requires looking at a variety of things. Where is the line between we think the customer needs it, we think there's a gap in the market, but we think the industry is large enough that we can actually have our own little slice of the pie. In other words, is it a product or is it a feature? Exactly. (laughs) That's another way of saying it, sure. A good question. So I think that you do have to recognize that, you know, certain things may be very good businesses, but that doesn't mean that they'll displace Google or they'll displace Microsoft. It can still be a good business, but still not be an enormous scale business. In this case, it appears interesting. It appears as we've looked at it, we think there are a lot of ways to slice it and a lot of very granular ways to present it. So the opportunity is bigger than I'm presenting at this point. And how will you ultimately establish your or evaluate your success? Is it going to be a number of users? Is it going to be on displacing not the Googles of the world, but another nascent startup? Help us to understand that, please. Well, I think since uh, it appears to be the sort of thing that doesn't require an enormous amount of funding, you can ratchet down what your criteria for success are, right? If you need to get $20 million in funding, then obviously your criteria are much higher. In this case, we think we can roll this out for reasonably short money given that that's the case, the criteria come down quite a bit. So as a segue to that, what's more important, the industry's trends or the competitors' moves? Flip side to both issues, right? Right. So I think that to the extent that the technology evolves very quickly and it enables certain things to become viable alternative products, you do have to be very cognizant of that backdrop, of that technology chain, in our case, the technology. But you can't ignore the, the direct competitors. So I think that they're both corollary components of the same issue. So if you had to look at this holistically, What do you think is the most or are the most important parts of the industry and the competitive analysis? 
I think understanding which problem you're really solving, you know, it sounds very basic, but it's easy to overlook. It's easy to get enamored with the underlying technology. At the end of the day, most consumers could care less about the technology. So you have to understand who it is that you're trying to sell something to and what value those people derive from it. The technology is a little bit beside the point. That said, you do have to understand how quickly technology changes and how what you're delivering will evolve as a byproduct of that. So you use the phrase, figure out the problem you're trying to solve. Yeah. Uh, in a few seconds, what is the problem you're trying to solve? I think the problem we're trying to solve is that people do presentations all the time and frequently they don't do them very well. We're trying to make people have a forum to improve their presentation skills in a low-risk, low-impact way. Great. Thank you very much. John Francis of Test My Pitch on getting ready for a full-fledged presentation. Coming up, we'll look at the advantage of doing a full-fledged plan. But first, what if you know your industry so well, it's easier to make your pitch using just bullet points? Do some customers respond better to less is more? Once again, here's Greg Stoller. Patricia Gray is an on-call executive general counsel and is also a member of two angel investing groups. Given her role as a senior management confidant and advisor, she's tended to rely on bulleted executive-style briefings with her work. Patricia, welcome. Thank you, Greg. So what sorts of companies do you tend to work with? Anywhere from startup to companies with revenues of over $2 billion. And what would you define as your areas of expertise? Obviously, I'm a lawyer by training, but I think the more important expertise to bring to the table, especially with early stage companies, is an executive perspective and a business development model that will benefit that company. And would you say your areas of expertise are more relevant to a nascent startup or a concept that's received, say, two or three rounds of funding? Well, I think any company at any stage could certainly benefit from the expertise. The more complex the transaction, the more my expertise comes into play. I've been an executive in four industries. Which four industries would those be? Manufacturing, technology, wireless, telecommunications, and healthcare. And how many years have you been doing this sort of work? I've been in the legal business for over 30 years and been an executive over 15. Impressive. So amongst those 45 years of person hours, if you will, <laughs> how many yous do these executives tend to surround themselves with? Is it usually you and the management team? Are there one or two of your type of confidants? Help us sort of understand the bigger picture, okay. please. I would say the kinds of companies that I'm working with right now would have a board comprised of two to four, maybe five, who would yeah. also double as an advisory board. At the early stages, companies need to be able to leverage the talent they have in as many different areas as possible. And of course, each individual is unique. So when you ask me how many advisors of my ilk are there, I would say, well, we're all kind of unique. Right. But it's all tailored to exactly what the business needs. What are they looking for you in particular for? Is it your legal and business knowledge? Is it that you've been there, done that with 45 years of doing this? Is it something else that's certain je ne sais quoi? It's a combination of both. Legal advice is not worth anything unless it's infused with a business strategy. And anything that young companies starting out going through two and three rounds of financing is always going to involve financing and a legal issue. Out of curiosity, is the antithesis true? Is business knowledge without legal expertise valuable? It's valuable to a point, but it can also get you into a lot of trouble. Okay. So why do you tend to rely on bulleted executive style briefings? Well, the most important reason is that that's exactly what investors want. They are assessing not only the business concept, but they're assessing the ability of management to really respond to market changes. So the more succinct and the more right on the message is, 
the more confidence the investor is going to have in that particular presenter. But let me push back. Okay. If these investors, if these executives are worth their weight in salt, you can't necessarily convince me that they will be happy with a series of bullet points as opposed to a four or five page long executive summary. Well, I often think if you can maintain the attention span of the individual writing the four or five page long summary, that's great. Not everyone is like that. And the most important thing is that you actually do have to do your market research. You have to know your material cold. But on top of that, you need to be able to show that you can prioritize what's important for this business. And that's the kind of manager you're seeking in the company that you're going to be investing in. So at the end of the day, is there any connection with depth and the length of a memo that you're preparing? In my view, no. Less is more. I totally believe that. And it shows both knowledge of the industry and also indicates an ability to prioritize what the key issues are to attack in the first instance. Now, this is a bit of an unfair question because every startup is different, every industry is different, but amongst your four to six bullets, mm -hmm. would you categorize them into different sections? Would one bullet focus on marketing? Would one bullet focus on the industry competitive analysis? Or is it really an amalgamation of the four or five most important sets of data or analyses that you want to present? Well, the three options you gave me, Greg, I'd go with the last one. But again, what you're trying to do is to communicate in as few words as possible, the most succinct and salient points about your business. The opportunity to be able to be challenged on those points will come in an executive presentation when you have your investors there cross-examining you on what's important. So how many of these presentations would you say you've done over the years? Well, I've counseled executives on giving the presentations okay. to investor advisors. And I would say over the years, we've gone through with the public companies that I've worked with, right. which are in a different scale. Obviously, it's every quarter because we have to get analyst sure, reports. Right. And that is very well rehearsed. For the younger stage companies that are preparing to give a presentation in order to raise money, I would say a dozen or so. I'm Greg Stoller, and we're talking with Patricia Gray, an executive and general counsel, a terrific combination. She often relies on the less is more approach when advising top managers. So have you found that anything is ever lost in translation when it comes to assessing the industry and competitive analysis? Well, as with any form of communication, there's always an opportunity for something to get lost in translation. I think you optimize your chances, though, when you hit the points clearly and succinctly, and then you present a cohesive and coherent presentation and stand up under pressure under cross-examination. So your executive style bulleted approach, is this a Patricia Gray special or is this a general business trend? I believe it's a business trend. I've had to learn it myself. I've had to pare down my own tendency to be a lawyer and to draft briefs. I believe it's uh, something that I see more frequently adopted. From whatever perspective you're coming, understand your material very well, perform all the analysis and the, the market analysis, the competitive analysis, and then I would also add for certain industries, understand your consumer extremely well and who's going to pay for the product. Now, service. conspicuously absent from your answer, was there anything having to do with the competition? Competition is part of it. When I say market analysis, I assume competition is part of it. I see it as one issue. So what's the difference then between the consumer and his or her competitors? It's not the consumer and the competitors. I would say understanding the consumers and who's paying for the service, that distinction is actually clearer in certain industries like healthcare, for example. Sure. You're not dealing with an individual consumer. You're dealing with a consumer who happens to be a patient and then an independent agency who's going to make 
payments, reimburse a hospital or actually pay for the drug that's being purchased. Okay. What are two or three of the largest oopses that you've That's a technical term, by the way. <laughs> what are two or three of the largest oopses that you've seen over the years and people who do this really poorly? Lack of preparedness. Standing up in front of an investor group and not being able to answer the questions and clearly showing that they're not really on top of their material. And flipping the coin, the two or three biggest sort of best practices? Best practices, the inverse of what I said, uh, being very well prepared, understanding your audience extremely well, and being flexible. Really listening, being in the moment and understanding the questions that are being presented at the time and being able to respond to them. And from a startup's perspective, where do you think you ultimately add the most value, as an attorney or as a confidant? I think there should be more confidence in the world and fewer attorneys, frankly. But the confidant is really the overall strategic advisor who will blend a whole history of experience and combination of specializations to help an executive. And do you find that these executives are telling you things that they truly are not telling their staff, even their executive staff, or even, dare say, their board members? That's the true sign of, of, a, a, confidant. of a confidant. And basically, an executive needs to be able to brainstorm bounce ideas off and feel free, just like an individual would speak to a priest of sorts, to know that they can share something in confidence and test out ideas and to feel open and free about it. Sort of like an executive coach type approach. Thanks, Patricia. Patricia Gray with a bullet point approach to writing a business plan. You've heard about the full-fledged and bullet point ways to do your competitive analysis. Coming up, we'll meet an international entrepreneur weighing the pros and cons of both next on The Language of Business. Our sponsor on the language business is Choose to be Nice. It's a social movement dedicated to encouraging and inspiring kindness wherever and whenever possible. Choose to be Nice is improving the way people interact with one another by reminding them that they have a choice about how to be in the world. And it all starts with a promise. Check it out at choosetobenice.com. You're listening to the language of business. Once again, here's Greg Stoller. Thanks, Don. After earning his MBA from Boston College, Leo Brea returned to Caracas, Venezuela to build a business, Veconinter, with his father. Their business is managing the accounting of containers for international shipping lines. It's officially called demurrage and detention. But in layman's terms, it's like forfeiting a portion of a security deposit by failing to clean out an apartment at the end of your lease. In this case, the forfeiture is caused by failing to return the empty shipping container by the date you've agreed to. His company is rapidly expanding all over the world. Leo, bienvenido de nuevo a Boston y bienvenido al idioma de los negocios. Muchas gracias, Greg. De nada. Muy encantado regresar a Boston. Gracias por todo, señora. So what we just said is welcome back to Boston and welcome to the language of business. Thank you very much for having me and it's always a pleasure to come back to Boston. So help us to understand how Veconinter originally expanded beyond its Venezuelan roots. Okay, well, first, Veconinter was started by my parents in 1988 and so I've been around that business for a good part of my life. Now, when I came to do my my MBA here at Boston College, we were actually presented in 2006 with the opportunity of opening up in Central America, Costa Rica specifically. So that was actually the first time that I was uh, involved from the business standpoint 
with the company. And did you do your summer internship down in Caracas, or were you focusing on another industry as you were on campus? I was actually focusing on another industry, but because I wanted to go back after the MBA program, I felt it was a good opportunity for me to start learning about the business. And at the same time, what we started seeing, because of the complexities of doing business in Venezuela, we felt that was a good opportunity for us to diversify that risk of simply having all our eggs, if you will, in one basket. So you graduated, you went back to Caracas, it was sort of old traditional school with your father, new, something high tech with you. How was that first month or two? Definitely you have two, a generational gap. Right. I'm coming from, let's say, a more American educational background and my father, like you said, he actually has his entire life in the maritime right. industry. So two different viewpoints, but I think that's actually what has made the company grow so quickly because now you have two different ways of seeing perhaps the same idea, same problem, and it really has allowed for the company to become a stronger company. So you mentioned the word grow two times in that last sentence. How do you assess geographies for their industry competitiveness or attractiveness? Well, really, we don't focus on the geography per se. What we've tried to do is leverage the relationships that we already have. The way it works in the maritime industry, at least, is that one or two people actually manage a large region. We already had the relationship, we just weren't leveraging that relationship. So what we've been able to succeed in is creating or strengthening that relationship with that one or two people per client and that has allowed us to strengthen our brand, strengthen our reputation in the in the region and they are the ones that are presenting us organically with the opportunities. So are you indicating then that if you have good relationships in place even if the industry isn't attractive you're willing to take that bet? We are a company that as I mentioned we're very aggressively looking for new opportunities. We haven't said no to an opportunity yet. Now what we have done obviously is taking a look at each and every market when that opportunity presents itself. Using what metrics? So we definitely carry out a market analysis. When I first jumped on board in 2007 as an official member of VEC and Inter, uh, it was really up to the directorship to carry out that responsibility per market. Now that we've grown to over 300 people, we actually have a department that focuses on new projects and markets, and they're the ones that we present them with either markets that we're interested in growing or have been presented to us via our clients. So let's discuss that a little bit more in depth. How much do in-person visits to the markets you're interested in matter in terms of the initial due diligence or the ultimate decision making? Initially, from a market analysis standpoint, in terms of how much potential revenue there is in a market, that really doesn't require an on-site visit. We can get those figures from our clients and just based on our international experience now, depending on the region, obviously every market is different, but they tend to be or tend to act very similarly depending on the region. We can estimate what the projections will be from a numerical standpoint. Now, where How so? we're talking about demergent detention. That's pretty yeah. much, as you mentioned before, the overstay fine that is required to be paid by the consignee or the importer right. uh, when they return the, the container. If we know, for example, what the turnaround time of a container is in the market and we can get that value from our clients, then we can estimate what the potential benefit that exists in that market. Interesting. I'm Greg Stoller, and we're talking with Senor Leo Brea, who's the CEO of Veconinter, a company involved in the accounting for international shipping containers. So after all of your years of successfully doing this, how much of it ultimately comes down to gut feel? 
The gut feel portion, if you ask my father, I think he's uh, actually gotten that down to science. Uh, he's definitely the one that focuses on, on the gut feel. I mean, he's been doing this for 40, 45 years. I'm still pretty new in the game, and even though you know you start gaining more experience as time goes by, I'm an engineer by background, came out of the BCMBA school. I still like to have the numbers in hand before making a decision. But let's take Jamaica just as a random location because I know it has a shipping port. How is your father, based in Venezuela, going to have gut feel about Jamaica? A gut feel in terms of what the potential benefit is. Now, when it comes to cultural differences, perhaps even a language barrier, we definitely do try and get some boots on the ground beforehand before we make that decision. So even accounting, no pun intended, for differences in culture, how much of your experiences in geographies A, B, and C would be applicable ad nauseum to uh, geographies D, E, and F? From the market analysis, it's not very complicated to understand if the potential benefit is there and if we can exploit that benefit. Where it really becomes tricky is trying to understand and ascertain what the cultural differences are. And the cultural differences really doesn't have much to do with the language barrier. Quite frankly, the language barrier, at least from our experience, is one of the least important or easiest barriers to overcome. But when it comes to how to do business in each and every market, that really becomes much more complicated to, to understand. So in times that results have fallen below expectations, how much of it is attributed to poor planning versus inadequate implementation? So when it comes to opening up a new market, doesn't matter how many reports and analyses one carries out before actually opening up a market, you still have to implement that market. And there's so many moving variables, so many unknown variables that you really can't ascertain all that information until you actually decide to take the risk and open up that market. Some markets haven't uh, lived up to par thus far. And what we have uh, carried out is understanding really why they haven't projected out as we, we thought they would and tweaking that business model to really put them in the position where we can succeed. Gracias por todo. Muchísimas gracias. Thanks, Greg. We publish a new episode of The Language of Business every Tuesday. We're available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and TuneIn and Google Play and Stitcher or just say, Alexa, play The Language of Business. Searching for latest episode of The Language of Business. Here it is from my cast. We now have downloads in 38 countries, 29 states, and four provinces. We appreciate the support, and it's very helpful in keeping the podcast going. If you haven't subscribed yet, we're easy to find anywhere you get podcasts, and you'll get new ones automatically. Our director is Mark Mandel. Social media by Jennifer Powell of ExcellentWriters.com. Consulting producer is Helen Tierney of Happy Accident Productions. Audio editing and voiceover by yours truly. Special thanks to Mike Carruthers of SomethingYouShouldKnow.net. For Greg Stoller and the entire team, I'm executive producer Don Kelly. Thanks for listening to The Language of Business.